take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 7. So today is the first Sunday of the Advent season. You'll see these candles here. We'll light one every Sunday for the four Sundays of Advent and then one on Christmas Eve uh, here as we gather to worship. The word Advent means arrival. And in the Advent season, it revolves around the arrival of Jesus. And and it revolves around arrival in in three different ways, this season of Advent that we're beginning today. First, in the Advent season, we anticipate the arrival of the Messiah. In so doing, we, we identify with the people of God who had been promised the Messiah and were waiting for the Messiah to come. We enter into their longing symbolically. We sing songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel. And we anticipate the arrival of the Savior, the King. And as we do that, we are reminding ourselves of our need for the Savior. So we anticipate the arrival of the Messiah. But, but second, we celebrate the arrival of the Messiah. Of course, the Messiah did come. Jesus was born. And so during this Advent season, we celebrate the fact that God kept his promise. He sent Jesus to this earth to live and die, to rise again, and to return to him. And with that, the third thing that this Advent season, that we do during this Advent season, is we anticipate the return of the Messiah. While we symbolically enter into the longing of the people of God uh, from the past, our longing for our Messiah is not artificial. Today, we who are the people of God are waiting. We are longing for the coming, the second Advent, of our Messiah, King Jesus, who will come again and who will fully and finally establish his kingdom on earth. And so here we are during this Advent season thinking about the arrival of the Messiah, anticipating, celebrating, longing for our King. And in order to Uh, celebrate the Advent season, what we're going to be doing on Sunday mornings, uh, the the place where we're going to be in Scripture is in Isaiah. Isaiah is one of the prophets, and in Isaiah we find, uh, just like with a lot of the prophets, we find promises of the Messiah. Of course, it's it's the prophets where the, the promises of the Messiah are made, and then the Gospels are where we see the story of the arrival of the Messiah. Uh, But Isaiah has so much to say about Jesus that it has been nicknamed the fifth gospel. That's how much Isaiah is about Jesus. And so we are going to spend most of our time in the prophet Isaiah for this Advent season. We, we of course, won't cover the whole book, uh, but we'll look at several different key passages that tell about the the coming of the Messiah. So we're going to read all of Isaiah chapter 7 today, uh, but since we're kind of diving into the middle, I want to just give you a little bit of a rundown of the places and people that we're going to see in here so that I can, we can kind of be all brought up to speed on who this is, what we're going to see, so we can follow along on the story. 
Uh, First of all, we're going to see that this is at the time when the kingdom uh, of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. There was Israel, or also called Ephraim, in the north, and then Judah in the south. The capital of the northern kingdom was Samaria, and the capital of the southern kingdom was Jerusalem. So God's people are divided at this time. It's in Judah that the line of David uh, continues. We have the, the king who is on the throne who is a descendant of David. We're also going to see in this passage uh, the nation of Syria, which is just uh, a neighbor to the north of Israel. But we're also going to see Assyria. And Assyria was the superpower of the region. They were strong uh, militarily, and they were dominating that part of the world at this time. Some of the characters, the people, uh, that we're going to see throughout this passage. We'll see, of course, Isaiah, who wrote this book. He's, we'll see God speaking through the mouth of Isaiah in this passage. Uh, we'll, we'll also see King Ahaz. He's the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. He is the descendant of David. So he is the king in the line of David. That's Ahaz. We'll see Rezin, king of Syria. And we'll see uh, Pekah, the king of Israel who is not a descendant of David, but who is the king of Israel reigning from Samaria. Okay, that's what we're going to see. Now let's dive in and read Isaiah chapter 7. This is the word of the Lord. In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Isaiah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Sha'ar Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field, and say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it, and let us conquer it for ourselves, and set up the son of Tabael as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, It shall not stand, and it shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within sixty-five years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. In that day, the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rocks and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. In that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and it will sweep away the beard also. In that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep, and because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds, for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. In that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. When I was a senior in high school, I was invited, this was January of that year, I was invited by a friend of mine to go on a mission trip. Our students have heard this story before, so don't give the ending away. Uh, I was invited to go on a mission trip to Kenya. I was invited in January, and the trip was going to take place in March. And so that seemed uh, like a little bit of a short notice. Uh, but uh, my friend Sarah invited me to go on this trip, and uh, I was like, no, you know, there, there's all these reasons. Well, we'll just pray about it. But the more I thought about it, I thought, no, this, this doesn't make any sense. Y you don't understand. And I, I told her. There's all these reasons why this doesn't make any sense for me to go on this mission trip. I mean, first of all, it's two months away. I mean, I, I'm, I was 17 years old at the time. Uh, my parents are not just going to let me go to Africa two months from now. Uh, at that time, I was doing dual enrollment classes in community college. It was my senior year. You know, it's a big year. And I'm thinking, there's no way I can just skip three weeks of classes to go on this trip. Not only that, I had these commitments of uh, leading worship. I was leading worship as a high school student, and I had committed to lead for two different events that were during that time that this trip was going to be. And uh, not, not to mention the fact that, you know, it cost like three grand, and it was two months away. Like, well, you know, there's no way that I can have this money to be able to go on this trip. And so I just, I, you know, gave her all these reasons. Like, no, this, this doesn't make any sense. Uh, it sounds great. You know, I wish I could go, but there's all these reasons why it just won't work out. And my friend, Sarah, heard all these reasons, and this was her response. Jeff, how big is your God? Uh... <laughs> It stopped me in my tracks. Because what she was asking me in that moment was not for a doctrinal statement. She didn't want me to tell her, you know, what I knew to be true from Scripture. 
she was seeing, rightly so, that in my heart, I didn't believe who God really was. I didn't believe that he could overcome all of these things that I saw as obstacles. Maybe he wanted me to go on the trip. Maybe he didn't. But in that moment, I didn't believe that he could get me there if he wanted to. I was looking at human wisdom instead of trusting a faithful God. What we're going to see in our passage today is a king who trusts in human wisdom instead of trusting in a faithful God. Of course, in my life, that was just one time of many times that I've trusted in human wisdom instead of trusting in a faithful God. And and I wonder if you can relate to that. When presented with an opportunity to step out in faith, to trust a God who can do anything, to trust a God who has made promises, to trust a God who has given a mission and given commands. Do you ever find yourself, depending on human wisdom, depending on what makes sense from a human perspective, instead of trusting a God who equips those who he calls, instead of trusting a God who's faithful to do what he promises to do. As we consider this passage this morning, as we consider promises of God, the simple point of what I want us to hear from the Lord in this passage today is this. Place your faith in the faithful God. Place your faith in the faithful God. We're going to see this in two parts. First, a faithless king, and second, the faithful God. So first, the faithless king. So as we come to this passage, uh, as I said, there's this nation of Assyria. They're the, the superpower of the region. They are trying to dominate this area. And this has thrown all of the other nations in the region into a tizzy, okay? So they are all scrambling to figure out what are we going to do about Assyria. Well, so Israel, the northern kingdom, and Syria, their neighbor, decide that in order to stand up against this, uh, this neighborhood bully, Assyria, we are going to form an alliance. So Syria and Israel form an alliance. And apparently they were wanting Judah, the southern kingdom, to join with them so that they would be even stronger against the nation of Assyria. But Judah resisted. Well, instead of just accepting that, Syria and Israel come against Judah and try and overtake King Ahaz and replace him with a king that would be more sympathetic to their interests. That's what we see in these first verses, in uh, verses 1 through 6. This is what their intention is. They want to set up their own king. Instead of the king that God had placed, instead of the house of David, this descendant of David was not good enough for them, so they wanted someone who would be sympathetic with their interests. So they come against Judah, and Ahaz and all of the people are terrified. Now, they shouldn't have been. God had made promises to this nation. He had promised 
Abraham. He had made a covenant with Abraham that this would be his people. He had made a covenant with David that he would always have a descendant on the throne. But the people were terrified. They were shaking, the passage says. And so God sends his prophet, Isaiah, to the king Ahaz, the king of Judah, in order to reassure him. Look at verse 9. At the end of verse 9, he says, If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. God, through Isaiah, is inviting Ahaz to trust him. He says, listen, I know that Syria and Ephraim or Israel are coming against you, but this is not going to work out for them. It's not going to work. They're not going to have success. In fact, Israel isn't, owing, isn't even going to be a nation in 65 years. God promises, I will keep my word. I will protect you. I will be your God. He invites Ahaz to trust him. In fact, he even says in verse 11 that he would give Ahaz a sign. He says, let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. I'll give you a sign to confirm, to assure you that I, am, I really mean what I say I mean. That I will be with you, that this isn't going to work. But in response to this offer of God to give Ahaz a sign, Ahaz says, uh, somewhat self-righteously, Oh, well, I will not ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. And it sounds really pious, right? It sounds, oh yeah, that, it's not a good thing to put the Lord to the test, right? But actually, it's, it's just a facade. He doesn't really mean it, and you can tell that because a sovereign God responds this way in verse 13. And he said, hear then, O house of David, ironically, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? See, Ahaz, in response to God's offer for a sign, was acting as though not asking for a sign was really a sign of belief. Because it's true that the Lord said, you know, you shall not put your God to a test. Because that indicates uh, unbelief. If you refuse to believe that God will do what he says he, he will do until God gives you a sign, that can be a sign of, of unbelief. No, I, I won't believe you until you, you know, transform this fleece or whatever the case may be. I, I won't believe you until you give me a sign. So it can be a sign of unbelief. But the difference here is God is telling Ahaz, ask for a sign. Let me assure you. Let me confirm this. And Ahaz not asking for a sign is actually evidence of his unbelief. He doesn't ask because he doesn't believe that God can actually give him a sign. He doesn't believe that God is going to do what he says he's going to do. Ahaz was not firm in faith. And he was not firm at all. And we see this confirmed by the rest of what Scripture tells us about King Ahaz. Uh, in 2 Kings chapter 16, you can find the story of Ahaz and the account of his reign. Uh, 2 Kings 16 verse 2 uh, tells us that Ahaz did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Like so many of the kings at that time, 
the kings in the line of David, he was faithless. He led Israel, or Judah rather, the southern kingdom, he led Judah into idolatry. He led Judah into faithlessness. He led Judah into immorality. And instead of trusting God, instead of trusting in his promises, instead of trusting God to protect them and trusting in God by obeying him, instead of doing that, when these nations came against Judah, what Ahaz does, as this alliance comes against him, he goes and he cozies up to Assyria. Ahaz leads Judah into an alliance with Assyria in order to defend them against Syria and Israel. In fact, Ahaz even bribes Assyria to defend them by taking some of the gold and silver from the temple and giving it to the king of Assyria so that they would defend them against these neighbors that they were afraid of. All of this points to the fact that Ahaz was trusting in his wisdom, trusting in human power, instead of trusting the God who had promised him protection. Instead of trusting the God who had promised that David's descendant would always be on the throne. 2 Chronicles 28 verse 22 says this about Ahaz. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this same king Ahaz. So here's King Ahaz, not trusting the Lord. Rather, he is trusting man. He's trusting his own human wisdom. He's trusting in human power of this evil nation. And so he denies God when God offers a sign. He refuses to accept a sign. Well, in response to this, God gives him a sign anyway. Look again at verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign, whether you want it or not. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The word Emmanuel means God with us. And probably actually can't see that, but on the slide, you'll have to take my word for it. It says God with us. It's the name of our series. It's what Emmanuel means, God with us. Even though Ahaz did not trust that God would keep his word, that God would keep his promise, that God was faithful to be with them, God insisted that he would give him a sign that even when Ahaz was faithless, he would demonstrate he is faithful. God is faithful. This would be a sign of the faithfulness of God. But this would also be a sign of just what a disaster it is to put your trust in man. Look at what God tells Ahaz about this promised son in verse 15. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. Well, what's the significance of that? Well, what we find out in the rest of the passage that we read a moment ago is that curds and honey are the food of poverty. They're the 
only food that is left after the land has been scoured of all of its natural resources. When there's nothing growing but briars and thorns, all that's left are curds and honey. So he's promising that this son, who would be a sign, would eat curds and honey at a young age, before he can tell right from wrong, he says. And then look at verses 16 and 17. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. So here's what God is promising here. He's promising, yes, I will protect you from these enemies, these two kings you dread. Their land will be deserted. As he said a moment ago, Ephraim itself will not even be in existence in a few years. And who is he going to use? He's going to use Assyria, this human king that Ahaz faithlessly put his trust in and foolishly put his trust in. God is going to use Assyria as his instrument to defeat Syria and Israel. But in the process, as a result, as a consequence of Ahaz and his foolish foolish decision to put his faith in Assyria, Judah uh, would would come to disaster. Yes, Assyria is going to come in, and they're going to come in like a bull in a china shop, and and they're going to destroy uh, both Israel and Syria. But if you think it's a good idea to get with this nation, you have another thing coming to you because they are going to come in and disaster is going to come on Judah because of your foolish decision to trust in Assyria. And we see that in the rest of this passage that we just read. There's going to be troops invaded. There's going to be the land that's going to come to ruin. Judah is going to be uh, become essentially a slave to Assyria in the process of their trusting in Assyria instead of trusting in God. So yes, God would be with Judah to protect them from Israel and Syria. But because of Ahaz's foolish decision to trust in Assyria, God would be with Judah also to judge them for their faithlessness. 2 Chronicles 28, 19 and 20 puts it this way. For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel. For he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord. So the king of Assyria came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. So what we find in this passage is the sign of Emmanuel is a sign both of the faithfulness of God and the faithlessness of God's people. Because Ahaz did not trust God to keep his word, did not trust God to keep his promise, he trusted instead in human power. And he received the consequences of his action. But even in the midst of his faithlessness, God was faithful and used his foolish decision to preserve them even through 
disaster. So, as we look at this sign of Emmanuel, what we need to recognize is this. Ahaz, as he trusted in Assyria, as he aligned himself with human power instead of trusting a faithful God, his, where he went wrong is he preferred Assyria with us to God with us. He found his confidence. He was looking for hope. He was looking for hope against the enemies of his people. He was looking for confidence. He was looking for strength. But he found that in human wisdom and human power instead of a faithful God. He chose Assyria with us instead of God with us. So what we need to ask ourselves as we look at Ahaz's example is, where where do we do this? Where do we find confidence in humans when we should be having confidence in God? Where are we looking for hope because of human wisdom or human power? Where are we trusting in man instead of trusting in a faithful God? We can do this as individuals. Because so-and-so is with me, I have hope. Uh, You know, as long as my employer keeps my job safe, then I can have hope. I can have confidence for the future. As long as my boyfriend or girlfriend stays with me, I can have hope and confidence and I can move forward with my life. As long as there's someone in political power who's part of my political party, I can have confidence and hope for the future. As long as people like me, I can have hope for the future. I can survive in this life. There are any number of ways that we put our faith and our hope in man instead of putting our faith and our hope in God. But what we need to realize is that anything and anyone that we place our faith in that is not God will let us down. We are putting our hope and our faith in sinking sand. You know, a church can do that too. A church can place its faith in human wisdom or in human ability instead of the faithful God. A church may be tempted to find its hope, its confidence in a leader. As long as we have this leader, as long as we have these leaders in place, then we can be strong as a church. Or as long as we meet these certain statistics about attendance or baptisms or whatever the case may be, as long as we have these humans in place, as long as this makes sense by human wisdom, we are a successful church. Or some churches, even in in outreach, we as a church may be tempted in our desire to see people come to the Lord. We we might be tempted to, to lean on emotional appeals or entertaining activities instead of trusting the word of God to do the work of God. Instead of trusting the spirit of God for the power of God. There's any number of ways that we can fall into the same trap of Ahaz, of finding more confidence in Assyria with us, human power with us, human wisdom with us, than God with us. A God who made promises, a God who declared a word for his people. But again, if we are trusting in anyone or anything other than God himself, 
we are setting ourselves up for failure. So let's look now at the faithful God that we should place our hope in, that we should place our confidence in. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 1. Read with me the first verse of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew writes, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. So right out of the gate, Matthew is telling us about Jesus Christ. And what he wants us to know about him is that he is the son of David and the son of Abraham. Well, why does he want us to know that? Well, Abraham, God had made a promise to Abraham, a promise that he would bless all the nations of the world through the nation that would come from Abraham and through Abraham's offspring. So Matthew, in in this first paragraph of his gospel, traces the line of Abraham all the way to David the king. Why David? Well, because again, God made a promise to David. We've seen that already in our passage in Isaiah. God made a promise to David that one of his descendants would be on the throne and would reign forever. So Matthew traces the line of David then. He traces it all the way through the descendants of David, including Ahaz, by the way, all the way until verse 11, where he comes to the deportation to Babylon. And what we see in Matthew's account here is that the disaster that came, the disaster that God promised would come upon Judah because of their faithlessness did in fact come to them. Assyria did come and invade, and, he, and they took over uh, uh, Israel, the northern kingdom. Assyria did come, and they wiped out Syria. And in the process, Judah, while they stayed in their land, their Land was ransacked, uh, a disaster came to them, troops began to occupy. Essentially, Judah became a slave nation to Assyria. That is until, as we see in Matthew, Babylon came along. A bigger bully in the neighborhood, if you will, came along and took over Assyria. And in their case, they came in and they overtook Jerusalem. They took the people of God. They deported them. And the people of God from Judah were now in exile in Babylon as a result of generations of kings who were faithless. And then, of course, after Babylon came Persia and then eventually Greece, ultimately Rome. And at the time of Matthew's writing, Rome was uh, empowered over the nation of uh, Judah or Israel, the people of God. And so we see that God's promise to judge the faithlessness of his people continued. But we also see, even in Matthew's account, that God was still faithful in all of that to preserve his people and to preserve the line of David. Even after the deportation to Babylon, even after the foolish or the consequences of the foolish decisions of the kings of Judah, his faithfulness continued. 
he continues to trace the line. Even through all of these uh, consequences that uh, Judah experiences, God continues to keep his promise to keep a heir to the throne of David. All the way until verse 16, we find a man named Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who was called the Christ. Let's pick up the story at verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. What we see in this passage is that Jesus is the fulfillment of the sign of Emmanuel. This promise that God made to Ahaz was fulfilled in Jesus. Everything happened just as God promised. Just as God had promised Abraham an offspring, so he delivered on his promise. Jesus was born the offspring of Abraham. God gave an offspring to David, just as he had promised. Jesus was born of a virgin, just as God promised. Jesus was born into poverty, just as God had promised. And he was born under the shadow of the enemy of God's people, just as God promised. Had promised. As Jesus was born, fulfilling the promise of Emmanuel, this was God saying, I am faithful to keep my word. I am faithful to do exactly what I have promised. Whenever God came to Ahaz and he offered to give him a sign, he offered to give him a supernatural sign, anything he could imagine. As high as heaven, as deep as Sheol, you name it, and I'll do it to confirm that I will do what I say I will do. And here, in the, in the sign of Emmanuel, in the, the fulfillment of this promise, God gives a supernatural sign. A virgin conceives and bears a son. It's something that no human could do. Only God could do this, and it confirms God's promise. But the coming of Jesus is an even more incredible sign than was promised. Because not only is he the child who was conceived by a virgin, he is also literally God with us. He's not just a symbol of God with us. He was in himself God with his people. Because in Jesus, God himself left glory to take on the form of a man. Just as we read in Philippians chapter 2, 
a moment ago. Jesus came. God himself, fully God, became fully man. He came and was physically present with his people. He was physically present with their suffering. He was physically present in their poverty. He was physically present in their human weakness. And he was physically present with them all the way to the cross. Because Jesus came to defeat a greater enemy than Israel or Syria. He came to defeat a greater enemy than Assyria or Babylon. He came to defeat the ultimate enemy of God's people, sin and death. And he did so as God with us, fully God, fully man, bearing the sin of sinful humanity in his human flesh. He took the death that his people deserved. He was Jesus. And he saved his people from their sins. So why should you have faith in this God? First of all, because God has demonstrated his faithfulness in Jesus. As we celebrate this Advent season, as we think about Christmas that is coming, all of this is a giant neon arrow that is pointing to this truth. God is faithful. The fact that Jesus came is evidence, it's proof that God will keep his promise. You can trust him. You can trust him to do what he says he will do. But there's another reason why you should have faith in this God. Uh, turn with me to the last chapter of this Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 28. Matthew begins his Gospel with the announcement that Jesus' coming was the fulfillment of God's promise of Emmanuel, that God would be with his people. And Jesus' coming did exactly that. He was God with his people in the flesh. But Matthew not only begins with that, he also bookends his gospel at the end. In verse 19 and 20, Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. If you're a Christian, you can trust God not only because he kept his promise in the past, but because Jesus is with you today. He is with you always. He is Emmanuel, God with you now. And as you go, as you fulfill the mission that he has given us, as we live as his followers on this earth, we can have confidence that God will do what he says he is going to do because Jesus is with us always to the end of the age. <coughs> so, after my friend Sarah 
convicted me to the core by asking me, Jeff, how big is your God? And I realized that God was quite small in my eyes. Um, I decided just to kind of throw her a bone. Okay, well, you know what? I'll just I'll ask my parents about going on this mission trip to Kenya. I'll, I'll see what they say, knowing in my in the back of my mind uh, they're gonna totally just uh, kill this idea from the beginning, and I'll get out of it. And you know, I, I can't say I didn't try. So I go to my parents, and uh, like, well, you know, Sarah asked me to go on this mission trip in two months, and I mean, I know you're probably gonna say no, but I thought I'd ask, can I go to Africa in two months? And uh, my dad said, why would I stop you from going on a mission trip? I was like, well, that was not the answer I was, I was expecting. Um, although you should know now, my dad actually works for a missions organization, so I probably should have seen that coming. But anyway, so that didn't work. Anyway, so uh, then I was like, well, you know, okay, I guess I'll go you know, check, on, check with my professors of these classes. Uh, so I go to the first professor. And uh, I give the speech about uh, what I was going to be doing, and I was going to be doing music ministry there in Kenya, and this was a music class uh, at, at, this, at this community college. And I go to the professor, and I tell her, hey, I've you know, got this opportunity to go. Like, is it okay for me to go on this trip? And she said, well, go. Go to Africa. Make music. Oh, okay. So I go to the next professor. And uh, I, I knew that he was, uh, he was kind of a liberal guy, probably not supportive of the kind of thing I was going to be doing. And uh, so I had my speech prepared, and I was trying to, trying to figure out, okay, how do I pitch this to this guy? I go, I say, hey, I have this opportunity to go to Africa in a couple of months. I, I'd have to miss quite a bit of class. And uh, he's, he just stops and he says, go to Africa. Okay. Um, that's two down. Um, so I go to, uh, to the third professor. Well, in this case, um, this was a class that hadn't started yet. I had never met this professor before. It was an eight-week class. I was going to be gone three weeks of the eight-week class. And my introduction to this professor was, hi, my name's Jeff. Can I have half of the semester off? And so I go into her office, not sure how she's going to respond. And I, I ask her, hey, I have this opportunity. Um, by the way, my name's Jeff. I'm going to be in your class. I have this opportunity to go to Africa. Is there any way to make this work? And she says, this woman I'd never met before in my life, she said, well, it's not ideal, but sometimes God calls us to things that are not ideal. So I think you should go to Africa. Wow. <laughs> okay. So uh, then by the time I go to the fourth professor, I'm basically just expecting this professor to, to be supportive. And I go in and say, hey, can I go to Africa? And basically, yeah, okay, great, see you. And uh, so I'm like, what in the world is going on here? So all of a sudden, my parents, who I thought were, would never in a million years let me go to Africa in two months, said, yeah, absolutely, go ahead. Go to the professors, who I thought never would let me pass these classes and still be in Africa. Sure enough, they're like, yeah, sure, do your work online, it's whatever. Uh, so then, okay, but these worship leading commitments, right? Uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm doing the work of the Lord. I can't give this up and go on these mission trips. Uh, but in the Lord's providence, he had raised up um, these leaders under me that uh, I was supposed to be training up anyway. And so uh, my pastors who I went to said, well, you know, absolutely. Like these guys, you know, you're supposed to be, you're supposed to be training them anyway. So this would be a great opportunity for them. Yeah, go, fine, we'll be fine. okay. And uh, but then, of course, came the cost, $3,000 for this trip. How in the world am I going to come up with this in the course of two months? Well, at this point, God had 
done quite a bit to fuel my faith, and I thought, well, maybe this could actually work after all. And so uh, I did what I had done for uh, the mission trips I had gone on at that point. I started writing letters and, you know, got this fundraising letter about this opportunity that I had to go to Africa, go on this mission trip, and uh, I, was, I was prepared to, to send out these letters and, uh, you know, just trust the Lord for what would come in. I had, you know, I had two months, not a lot of time, but, you know, I thought, eh, you know, who knows what the Lord can do with two months. Well, then I get a call from the leader of the trip that uh, because it was uh, only two months away, we were going to need to put a deposit down on this, uh, the airline tickets to be able to secure them for this trip. And it was going to be needed in a week. And it was going to be, uh, if I remember correctly, uh, $1,430. Well, so letters were probably not going to work. <laughs> And he, he tells me, yeah, listen, you, you know, you have this great plan to write letters. It's probably not going uh, <laughs> to work to be able to get money in a week. You need to start making calls. And I was like, I'm just going to, like, cold call, like, my friends and family. Okay, so I, I'll, I'll try. And so I, I make the first call uh, to, to, to some family members. And they say, oh, you know, we'll, we'll pray about it. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> uh, can you pray quick? <laughs> I, uh, I call some other friends and uh, start pledging me money to, to support me on this trip. $50 here, $100 here, $200 here. All of a sudden, in the matter of what I didn't think could take a week, in the matter of about an hour, I had, I think, $1,050 pledged after just a few phone calls. And I thought, what? in the world is happening right now. This trip that I didn't think could happen in a million years, all of a sudden people are just saying, yeah, I'll send you money, I'll send you money, I'll send you money. And um, then I, I, I got a call from one of my aunts that had, uh, um, had already pledged to support me with like $50. And uh, at that point, you know, I'm just, I'm thrilled, you know, $1,050 already, this is so great. And she says, hey, I was just telling uh, your cousin about this trip that you were going on. And uh, he's been saving up some money, wanting to give it to some good cause. And uh, he wants to support your trip, too. I'm like, oh, that's great. Thank you so much, you know. And, yeah, it's, it's $400. Sorry, how, how much? It's $400. So I needed $1,430 within a week, and I didn't think I could get it. But within an hour, God had people in my life who pledged $1,450, the exact amount I needed, plus $20 just to punctuate the fact that God is faithful, and if he calls me to do something, he will provide for what he calls. And I was just blown away and so convicted. I mean, I really didn't think God could do it. I really didn't trust that God if he wanted me to do something, that he would provide for me to be able to do it. But what is $1,400 to the God who created the stars? What are a few classes and a few professors to the God who softened Pharaoh's heart? If God can do this, if God can take on flesh and go to the cross, and take the sins of the world, and give eternal life to all of us, how can we not trust that he will also be with us in every step of the way? Everything that he calls us to, every suffering that we walk through with him at our side, God, Emmanuel. This God is faithful no matter what. Even when we are faithless, 
he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. So don't place your trust in man. Don't place your hope in human wisdom. Place your faith and your hope in the God who is faithful. The God who keeps his promise. The God who is Emmanuel. God with us. As we wait for the day when the promise of Emmanuel is fully and finally fulfilled. Revelation 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. Our God is Emmanuel. Let's pray together. Father, you are faithful. Even when we are faithless. Even when we make foolish decisions. Even when we put our trust in human wisdom and human power, you still are faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. You are the faithful God, and you are Emmanuel, God with us. So Lord, I pray that we would place our faith and hope in you, even as we wait for that day when you are with us in the fullest and truest sense that you ever will be with us. Lord, I pray that every step along the way, as we wait for that day, we would trust in you, our faithful God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.